You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Welcome to the Women in Archaeology Podcast, episode 20. On today's episode, we will be discussing the history of women in archaeology. We'll be talking about the contributions women have made to archaeology from the beginning of the discipline and highlighting some of our favorite female archaeologists. Today's panel consists of Deidre Black, Kristen Lopez, Emily Long, and Sarah Head. Let's join the conversation. Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Today I'm joined by uh, Deidre Black, Kristen Lopez, Emily Long, and Sarah Head. Ladies, thank you so much for being here today. Of course. So happy to be here. Glad to be here. Wonderful. Uh, By the way, it's Chelsea Slotin. Forgot that. (laughs) Minor detail. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the history of women in in archaeology, and I'm just going to jump straight in because women have been involved in archaeology for as long as archaeology has existed. The earliest museum that we know about comes from about 500 BC, and it was created by a Neo-Babylonian princess. It's called the Archaeologist Princess, who we're going to come back to a little bit later in the show. But I would like to point out that that is over 2,000 years ago, we have female archaeologists. We're not a new phenomenon. So deal with it. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. And then, unfortunately, the the further back you go, the less specific you can be with with names. Things aren't written down. I mean, we're all archaeologists. We know the the problems. I'm going to fast forward about 800 years to 300 BC. Uh, Helena of Constantinople, who some people may know better as Constantine the Great's mother who is an an ardent Christian. She is also St. Helena. She was known as the patron, or she is the patron saint of all new discoveries. So anytime any new discoveries, scientific or otherwise, are being made, we should all be thanking a woman. Just pointing that out, too. Um, She was a lot of things. Deal with it. Right? She was a barmaid and a courtesan and an empress and a saint. There are rumors that she was an assassin, and when she was about 70 years old, she decided that she wanted to be an archaeologist. So she went on a trip east to look for pieces of the true cross of Christ, and apparently found a whole bunch of pieces, along with several other mystical Christian items. So she had a a long and varied and fascinating life. Um, ending with being an archaeologist, because clearly she saved the best for last. Again, moving forward about another thousand years, because of the the issues with historical documentation, we have Lady Hester Stanhope, who was born in 1776. She traveled all over the world. She was the first woman to reach Palmyra. She had a um, 
boy toy from G- Gibraltar when she was 36. He was 21. All about, you know, owning your sexuality. She lost all of her possessions in a shipwreck, dressed like um, a, a Man in whatever the local clothes were, turbans, pants, anything she could get her hands on. She was also one of the first women to do um, excavation in the Holy Land. I'm going to come back to her a little bit later because she's really fascinating. About 100 years after that, we have a whole crop of females. We have Mary Anning and Ethelred Bennett, Barbara Hastings and Mary Buckland who are just these amazing women, mostly British, a lot of who were more actually paleontologists and fossil collectors, but a lot of their collections still exist today and can be accessed at places like the Natural History Museum of London or the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. And they contributed this really great breadth of knowledge to what we know about the, the past. A lot of those women bucked convention and never got married, were divorced, and were really exactly who they were. And then starting to move us into the the more modern period, um, which we're going to talk to talk about next, we have Christian McLellan, who was born in 1811 and died in, in 1901. So this crosses over a little bit into our next period, which starts in 1850. She was the first archaeologist of Scotland. She came from a family that had a lot of money, so she could afford to have uh, these sorts of hobbies. She was really interested in prehistoric Scotland and was actually among the the first uh, archaeologists, the first group of archaeologists who considered stratigraphy in their analysis. And as we all know, stratigraphy is super, super important so anytime somebody asks you to do a profile drawing, you have uh, this woman to thank for that. Um, she was also a, a pretty cool person. She used some of that family money in her older age to provide housing for the working class outside of Sterling in the UK. So great archaeologist, spectacular human being, all around somebody to to aspire to a little bit. Emily, if you want to get us into the next period, the uh, 1850s on? Of course. And I'm looking a little more at the time period, and it's a fascinating period in archaeology history in general. Um, The Victorian era, we see an explosion in archaeology. People are desperate to visit these major monuments to the past, look at prehistoric civilizations, and of course, take relics of these things with them. Fortunately, we see more of the development of scientific practices during this time. And with that, we see more women taking that role of recording the information. But unfortunately, being the Victorian era, I think more people mostly think of men with mustaches and pith helmets <laughs> sitting, you know, on one of the stones of the pyramids, or that it was only the men going on these amazing expeditions. But women were certainly present. I mean, there were amazingly adventurous women exploring archaeological sites, making discoveries, despite the restraints of Victorian culture. And it's crazy to think in that time period, there was science 
trying to back up that women were weak in brain and body. They still believed in the concept of hysteria, where your womb is just wandering around your body and making you crazy at times. And that doing any more masculine work, and archaeology was considered more masculine, was incredibly inappropriate. Fortunately, though, we have many wonderful examples of women proving that completely wrong, that women are not weak in brain and body. One of the things that we need to keep in mind is that a lot of these early female archaeologists, not a lot of them, but a lot of the ones where in a way are voiceless, where that their work isn't as recognized. A lot of them were titled, wealthy, um, a lot of them were married, and they took part in their husband's archaeological work and would do a lot of the recording, uh, the drawing, the cataloging, just all the things that are 100% necessary to get the work done, but here all these guys are the ones getting the recognition. And there are a few women who certainly were able to gain recognition in their own right that they were complete and total badasses. Jane uh, Delafoy, and we'll hear definitely more about her, and she and her husband, they worked as equals, and she wore men's clothing, and she got amazing recognition from France. And then we have Amelia Edwards, and she's like the mother of Egyptology. And we've got uh, Zila Natal, and she's considered the queen of Mexican archaeology. And they, a lot of them did this work on their own, and it's amazing. During this time period, as we get into the later 1800s, universities are slowly beginning to allow women into their ranks, but most of the time they were still part of laboratories or um, still about all about the recording and analysis. Women, some women were allowed to teach at universities like um, Margaret Murray at the University College of London, but she wasn't even allowed the title of professor. And at that particular school, women weren't even allowed to have that title until 1949. So imagine a lot of universities probably weren't allowing women. And even the ones they were allowing there and allowing their teach probably did not have the right recognition that they deserved. It To me, this time period, even as we're moving into the 1900s, yes, more and more women are in the field, but it seems like they weren't gaining the ability to say, I am doing my work, I am going to do this no matter what, on their own, and getting that really, that recognition they deserved until it seemed like the 1960s. Yes, we have many amazing women, the leakies, etc., but it seems like without that massive change of the 1960s, things were going pretty slowly. And uh, so yeah, with the 1850s to 1950s, there were many important, um, incredibly influential women making major contributions to the field, but they just were not given a voice. And that moves us on into the period where more and more women were standing up and saying, you're giving me a voice whether you like it or not. Exactly. <laughs> and of course, by this time in the 1950s and 60s, we have a bit of a cultural shift. Um, as we all know, the civil rights movement in the 1960s and the legalization of divorce across much of the Western world um, really kind of encouraged women to, you know, stand solid, let their voice be heard, and make it be heard whether everyone around them wanted to hear it or not. So that is a plus. With this, we also, of course, see an influx of female archaeologists. Um, and I have... 
in looking at this time period, 1950 to present, there are so many to choose that are so amazing, um, inspiring women to look up to. So I'm like, okay, how are we going to narrow this down? So I picked a handful of female archaeologists from um, mid-century to modern, many of whom, of course, only being 50, 60 years ago, um, some are still working and around. So, you know, a shout out definitely to those amazing women who hold top seat, like Diane Gifford Gonzalez, who is currently the president of the Society for American Archaeologists. She's definitely on the top of the list for me. But going through uh, some firsts in this era, um, we have, uh, so earlier on, this this is kind of a, a round or a little bit earlier than 1950, Bertha Parker Palin uh, was the first Native American woman archaeologist uh, born in 1907 in New York, and she worked through the 1930s and 40s um, into the, the 50s. So she's been, she was around for quite a while and worked in the Southwest. She was an assistant archaeologist and ethnologist, and of course, she was valued because she had a lot of insight and a lot of inspiring ideas that were outside of the white male default view of archaeology and what everyone was looking at in the ground. So her unique, quote-unquote, unique perspective at the time, for sure, was really appreciated. Um, but as Emily was saying, she was a lab rat, basically. <laughs> she did work in the field um, occasionally, but she did most of her work at um, in the lab doing the analysis and really talking to uh, a lot of the other archaeologists that she worked with in uh, better interpretation and inspiring ideas for different contexts that they'd be looking at. Uh, we have revolutionary archaeologists that were female. Uh, we're looking at a lot of the theoretical turns in the really hot theoretical decades of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. So Patty Jo Watson was an early processual archaeologist in the 1960s. She worked in Iraq. And today she continues to work in the U.S. in Mammoth Cave, Kentucky, which if anyone has been there, it's a fabulous, amazing place. And she continues to work today uh, in, as emeritus. She works in Mammoth Cave beginning in 1963, um, approximately, and is continues to be associated today with the ongoing excavations there. So from uh, Patty Jo Watson in the 60s and onward, we also have Margaret Conkey, who from the beginning, this woman has been, I think, what a lot of female archaeologists want to be. She's worked in the uh, late Paleolithic France with cave paintings, you know, kind of the sexiest archaeology that's out there. So my, my <laughs> <laughs> but amazingly, she's also one of the founders of what we know today as feminist archaeology. So uh, Margaret Conkey over at UC Berkeley, she's emeritus there, I believe, now. She has 
written some of the founding um, articles and books on the subject with Joan Giro and others. Engendering Archaeology, Women in Prehistory is you know, one of those early uh, texts which taking a gender, gender and archaeology class in my undergrad was very impressive. So with those, we should mention a couple of firsts. I did not mention um, Bertha Parker Palin as the first or first known native archaeologist or female archaeologist. Uh, there's also a notable archaeologist who worked with the American diaspora in Americas, who is Teresa Singleton, uh, is usually considered the first black American uh, female archaeologist. She was the first PhD um, black female American PhD archaeologist. And she's at Syracuse University. From there, there's a number of archaeologists kind of scattered throughout a number of institutions which continue to shape and form the way that we conceive of archaeology. Uh, Whitney Battle Baptiste is one. Uh, she is a I don't know how to really describes herself as a black feminist archaeologist. So that kind of gets you off on the right foot. Uh, I had actually stumbled across a talk that she did in, at the SAAs in Orlando, and I skipped all of my other talks I had planned to go to for that day. <laughs> and that's the only time that I can really say that I was just entranced by the speaker. She was, she was very knowledgeable and, and a very good speaker. Um, Were you a little you starstruck? All, a, a little bit. I was like, I've never heard of this woman before, but she's amazing. <laughs> and since then, you know, it's kind of, I don't get starstruck easily, but definitely she's one on the list that I'm like, you know, that, you know, she, she's going to do amazing things. Um, I mentioned before Diane Gifford Gonzalez. Yeah, so I know one other, um, you know, later later date archaeologists is uh, Ruth Tringham, who uh, is still alive. She is actually one of the the first women to really get into digital archaeology, or at least to to make it a, a big thing. And one of the bigger projects that she was involved with was she and some co-workers reconstructed um, Karohoyak in Second Life. Second Life being um, like a virtual reality kind of place. Um, it's online. I think it was mostly a thing in like the late 90s, early 2000s. There was a whole CSI episode around it. She did some really interesting work on can we recreate the the past in the present and how can digital um, platforms help us understand the past and understand the archaeology that we're looking at? Her original work was um, on lithic use, where studies, um, which was very experimental. She later moved on to do work on household art but I believe she is currently the 
director of the Center for Digital Archaeology. So, and that, that kind of brings us into the 21st century where archaeology is more than what we're, we're digging up and finding in the dirt, which is pretty exciting that we've, we've moved on. It's not all about just excavation. It's about the people and agency and using many different types of technology and science and incorporating as many different departments and concepts as possible. It, I mean, it's fascinating. There's such a switch from that like very stereotypical academic style to really broadening it. And so it's really cool to see the different women out there bringing out different types of technology and ideas. And we've been pushing the archaeological boundaries for 2,500 years. <laughs> um, so it's nice to see that we're still doing that. Yes. That does bring us to the end of our first 20 minutes. And when we come back, we're going to talk a bit about who some of our own personal heroes are. And I know it's so hard to choose because there are so many really, really wonderful women to pick from. So I'm excited to hear what the rest of you have to say. And um, it's going to be good. <laughs> Let's face it. The quality of archaeological field photography could really use some improvement. We aim to change this with the Codify Magic Photo Board. This lightweight but incredibly durable board is designed to help you take color-perfect photos of artifacts, features, and sites using almost any camera, even your smartphone. You need to see it to believe it. Engineered from exceptional quality, color-safe, high-pressure laminate, Codify Magic Photo Board is ready for tough field conditions. It's guaranteed to level up your photography. Start taking publication-worthy photos right in the field with the Codify Magic Photo Board. Available now for pre-order, visit codify.com slash APN. That's codifi.com forward slash APN today and get your promo code exclusively for listeners of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology. Today, we've been talking about the history of, of women in archaeology, and we've just completed kind of a very broad strokes overview of some of the interesting things that women have contributed to archaeology. And we're going to move into some of our personal favorites. Um, Deidre or Sarah, do you want to kick us off with somebody that you love learning about, love talking about, wish you had learned more about? I want Deidre to go first because I think hers timeline wise come before any of mine anyway. Okay. Just a few thousand years. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no Ever. Just, you know, the beginning of culture as we know it. Okay. Well, I'm going to go first, and I'm going to start off with the archaeologist princess of Ur. And uh, we call her that because she's the first one to write shit down. And as Adam Savage told us, the difference between science and screwing around is writing shit down. <laughs> So this is Princess Enigaldi Nana, daughter of King Nebuchadnezzar and granddaughter of King Nebuchadnezzar. Those of you from an Abrahamic faith tradition might recognize the name Nebuchadnezzar. But this is the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Uh, the city of Ur, where they lived, had been around for, oh, 4,000 years or so at this point. She was of, when she started her museum, it was about 530 B.C. in Ur, um, and it was in the palace in the shadow of the ziggurat of Ur 
which is in modern day southeastern Iraq. And so we knew from a few writings that King Nebuchadnezzar liked history and he liked to collect stuff. And for certain, King Nebuchadnezzar was an antiquarian. He liked to collect old stuff, show off. It was cool. Um, but it was the princess, Nigaldinana, that wrote shit down and organized it. Um, her and her father would go all over Mesopotamia and excavate. Some of these sites were from the 20th century before the Common Era. Uh, it was really neat. And they would go all around, mostly southern Mesopotamia. And she started keeping them in her living quarters, organizing them. And then at some point, they are lined up neatly and organized on a low bench. And they have these museum markers that are clay cylinders with a description location written in three different languages. And the way we know this is uh, a fellow by the name of Leonard Woolley. He's one of the earliest recognized modern Western archaeologists, <laughs> man. But he was a contemporary of Lawrence of Arabia. He went all over you know, the Middle East and Mesopotamia in the 20s. And in 1925, he started excavating this temple. And he started finding all these artifacts from many time periods all in one place, lined up very neatly with labels. It's like, what is this? And although sometimes his interpretations are more towards the fanciful, he decided that this is a museum. You know, it's not what we would call a modern museum, but as far as, you know, there's things to look at. They have labels to put them in context, the most important thing in archaeology, it, it's a museum. Ta-da! And that is why we have the, uh, the princess archaeologist of Ur. That's so cool. And it's a shame because I honestly, I had never heard of her before. Uh, I read a great series called Uppity Women. Yes, Uppity Women oh, of Ancient Times. I have that book, yeah. There's Uppity Women of Ancient Times, of Medieval Times, of the Renaissance, yeah. And then awesome. they do a pretty good job of digging out, because this is what I've just said. That's pretty much all we know about this woman. Um, there's not any writings of her ever marrying or having children. That doesn't mean yes or no. And this is, this is pretty much all we know about her. It just means, like so many other things, we don't know that much because it wasn't written down or the papyrus has melted away into the fog of time. Or the men who excavated went, oh, that's a lady's name. I'm going to throw it over here now. Right. What? I got to go find the spears. <laughs> I got to go find the spears now. I think you guys are being a little cynical. A little cynical. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, maybe. Maybe just a little. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we don't know. That's so, Deidre, what what's, your, what's your other woman? Because I think she's before mine, too. Uh, mine is actually in 1950, my next one. Ah, well then. Yeah, yeah. Let us then jump forward many thousands of years to... Um, <laughs> hey. Well, no, I'm just saying. Unless someone else has got one to fill in there. I've got 1776. Well, I think you beat me, so go for it. Okay. 
This is going to be a quick one. So there is um, a woman that I mentioned earlier by the name of Ethelred Bennett, who is actually a, one of the first female geologists, and she did most of her work in Wiltshire. She was born in 1776. As I mentioned, she was the eldest daughter of a landed nobleman uh, or landed gentry. Um, we do have records that show that she never married. She debted her life to the study of earth sciences. Um, she felt that that was more important than a husband or children. Um, she cataloged thousands of specimens, many of which are housed at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philly. But kind of the fun fact about her is Ethelred isn't, you know, like a, maybe a typical feminine name that you would think of. Um, so she was actually granted an honorary doctorate in civil law from St. Petersburg University by Tsar Alexander I because he didn't realize that she was a she. <laughs> uh, and that, that fact apparently followed her around a bit um, in life and, and was something that she had to explain and... Um, but I just, I think that's a wonderful, fun fact about her. Well, if we're sticking hard and fast to this timeline, uh, <laughs> I have. <laughs> no, not at all. No, I, I figure it's going to fall apart here pretty quick. Um, <laughs> I have Lady Hester Lucy Stanhope, uh, the first modern excavator in the Holy Land. And I will not go into her incredibly interesting life. Uh, because it is very long, and she did a lot with herself. Um, but yeah, she she uh, she was an an independent woman, um, kind of born into riches, and decided to use those by traveling the world and just basically seeing what she could get away with. Hmm. Um, this landed her. Now she was born in 1776, just to give people a timeline there. Um, and roughly, uh, about 1815, she was around 40 years old, which for this time is kind of an older age for a woman. Um, she led an expedition to Ashkelon, uh, and this, I feel like this excavation is one of the first modern archaeological excavations, and it happened in an area that we now know as Palestine. I feel like Ashkelon is an important dig because while she was there, uh, Lady Hester used stratigraphy. She took copious notes. She made sure that everything that came out of the ground was cataloged and recorded. She and her assistant um, maintained daily documentation of what was occurring at the excavation. And they also incorporated, um, I believe, some sketch work of the site. I feel like the way that her excavation is described, would it would not be unfamiliar to a modern excavator today, to the point where several hundred years later, when the same area was re-excavated, when the same area was excavated in the modern day, um, the excavators completely dismissed any of the notes that she had taken at the time, and they, they just said, oh, poo-poo, what could she possibly have known? Um, they re-excavated everything that she had already excavated, and 
using modern techniques, drew the exact same conclusions <laughs> that she had drawn during the era. And when it was pointed out to them, they were like, oh, well, I guess it was just one of those weird fluke things. But it's important to understand that this excavation took place before uh, Fox Pit Rivers was even born. So this excavation is occurring before the father of modern archaeology was even like doing archaeology. So that's why I think this excavation and why Lady Hester Stanthrope is so important to the field of archaeology. And you don't also, see her she in was textbooks. in general a badass. You never see her in textbooks. Yeah. If you do see her in textbooks, it's usually some way they're like trying. Because during the excavation, she was accused of trying to steal the riches of Palestine to take it back to England. And so to prove them wrong, she destroyed uh, this really beautiful statue, I guess, that they uncovered there. Okay. To, to prove to them that she was not taking things back to England. Um, so she had the, the statue destroyed. And a lot of times you will see her uh, blasted for that, completely ignoring everything else that she did mm -hmm. and not taking that event in context. And so it's a way of villainizing her and a way of um, devaluing what she did and dismissing her. So no one else did anything shady whatsoever during the Victorian era and pre-scientific. Yeah, no, no, no other male archaeologist destroyed anything. Yeah, they weren't exactly. using dynamite in exactly. Yeah, but just said. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> they were just smuggling busts in, in bales of hay. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but this woman, this woman who dared to do something, she's the bad guy. Yeah. I mean, and anyway. That brings up an interesting point when you um, were talking about Fox Pit Rivers. I mean, he is really well documented in the textbooks that I I read when I was in college and the ones I've used now as an instructor. And so it's interesting that, I mean, he's um, highly acclaimed. And then you have uh, then these specific German archaeologists who came before him, but you don't hear one single thing about, about Lady Hester. Don't hear anything about Lady Hester. And let me tell you something. Schleiman and I are not friends. <laughs> <laughs> is anyone friends with Schleiman? That man is an asshole and has no right to be called a father of any field, let alone archaeology. For our yeah. listeners, who was he? <laughs> Do you want me to give you the clean version or my version? <laughs> I think your version's more fun. I mean, the nutshell is he discovered Troy. Oh, uh, yeah. Which is actually called Walusa. <laughs> okay, and let's put, do put discovered in quotes because Big he didn't old discover quotes. shit. He dug straight through the fucker yeah. <laughs> till bedrock and then went, oh, I guess I dug through Troy and then stole everything that he found because yeah. Schleiman was an asshole. Anyway. Over it. <laughs> um, so another kind of fun individual from... Off that soapbox? <laughs> around that time. We're going to go with like the, the late 1700s, early 1800s. Uh, it's going to be another short one. Mary Anning, who has been referred to as the greatest fossil hunter ever known. Yay. Uh, so she was Yay. from a... Right? <laughs> she was from a poor family of religious um, dissenters. And she started looking for fossils to sell to them to, to visitors but the 
one of the claims to fame that she has is that she is the woman who recognized that Bazaar stones, which you should all recognize from Harry Potter as being the thing you find in the stomach of a goat that you should eat and it will cure all poisons, are not actually Bazaar stones. They're corporalites. And for you, um, any non-archaeologist listening or early in their career archaeologists who don't know, corporalites are fossilized feces. So the next time you read Harry Potter and somebody feeds Ron a Bazaar to cure him of a toxin, keep in mind that that's fossilized feces. Oh. <laughs> yes. Although there, there is one toxin that a Bezoar can reduce the toxicity of, I can't remember which one, one of the heavy metals. Well, you know, now they're doing um, gut transplant and feces transplant to figure out your uh, like gut Yep, you have a lot Biotics. of issues, you know. You just take a, a squeegee of whatever's in one person's colon and insert it into the next, Yeah. Right. And so, now we're talking about poop. <laughs> <laughs> that means we're real archaeologists. True story. <laughs> <laughs> you got to find a golf ball and talk about poop. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Moving right along, I'm going to keep going down the list unless somebody else wants to stop me. I've got. I'll, I'll um, pop in when we get to the 20th century. Okay, I've got Jane Delafoy. Oh, and you should Gertrude talk about Bell. her first. Yeah, she's amazing. Who else? Who what? You should talk about her. Yes, because Jane Delafoy is my spirit animal, and I love her so much. <laughs> um, seriously, though, this girl, this woman, she's not your spirit is, animal. Yes, she is. She's no, she can be your patronus. But she's, she's not your an spirit animal. animal. She could be my Patronus. But she's there an animal. Go. Therefore, she can be my spirit animal. Anyway, um, Jane, Jane DeLafoy um, was married. So she, she fits kind of the pattern that we were talking about earlier. But uh, Jane and her husband actually worked as equals, which during the Victorian times was practically unheard of. And it's still kind of unheard of even in the modern era. Um, Jane and her husband... They were both French, which may have contributed to that somewhat. Uh, her husband's name was Marcel. And they spent, Marcel was part of the army, uh, the French army during that time period. But they spent a lot of time uh, doing work in the Middle East and taking beautiful pictures. Uh, Jane Delafoy was well known for the amazing photographs that she managed to take and use those to uh, help along with, help illustrate the excavations that she and her husband did. Um, they're most famous for their excavations in Persia and, give me just a second, uh, Persia and Susa, or Susa, I think it's how it's pronounced. Susa is perhaps my favorite one because this is, the, this is where the story of um, Marcel had gone off Marcel had left Jane with all of the supplies and the things that they had found. They were waiting for a boat to come, and Marcel had left her to go find the boat, to go find a boat to get all the stuff so they could get it back to the base camp. And while he was gone, this large band of bandits came up upon Jane and the stuff, and they were like, we're going to take your stuff. And Jane went, 
well, I have a barricade and a gun. <laughs> and she literally held them off, just her and her gun. I think she had a rifle. Um, she held them off by herself while Marcel returned with the boat and with other men to help unload. And at that point, the bandits left. So I'm just like, how badass is that? Seriously. Uh, probably the thing, if anybody even knows who Jane Delafoy is, probably what they know her best for is the fact that she was a, she cross-dressed. Um, contrary to popular belief, this wasn't an immediate thing. She originally tried to dress like a woman while they were first doing their excavations. But she um, she found that the womanly trappings were not were very cumbersome for travel in the in the desert and so and through the jungles and the marshes and the swamps and all that. So she decided to opt for men's pants while she was in the field. And then at one point while they were out camping, she got a severe case of lice and unfortunately had to cut off all of her hair. Well, once her hair was cut off and she started wearing men's clothing, everybody just assumed she was a man. And so she and her husband were able to travel much freer that way because they weren't encumbered by a woman. And I put that in quotes. Mm -hmm. It was to the point where the Sultan, when they, when they, when they spoke with one of the Sultans, he didn't believe that she was a woman until she removed her coat and jacket and proved to him that she had a female figure. And apparently he was so amazed by this that like he showered them with gifts or whatever, basically let them come in and do their archeology span as they needed. Um, but yeah, Jane Delafoy actually, when they, when they came back, she got so used to wearing men's clothing when they came back to France after doing their excavations, she actually got permission from the French government to continue wearing men's clothing. So those are her two big claims of fame is her amazing photography uh, during the excavations all through Persia and the Middle East and her cross-dressing, which became part of her identity. She needed to have the French government's permission. Apparently she had to have the French <laughs> government's permission to not wear women's clothing. I, I don't know the full story behind that, but I know that she herself actually obtained permission from the government to dress as a man. In so public. I at that point, cross-dressing was a uh, illegal and punishable offense. Was it? Okay, so it's, there you go. We, okay. we have documents from that time in France of women getting to what, together and wearing Turkish trousers and running through the streets in protest. Yeah, and Jane didn't even do the Turkish trouser thing. She was yeah, just, she just like, give me pants. <laughs> <laughs> and didn't the French government uh, award her some really high honor as well? Yes. Uh, give me just a second, and I will jump on that. Uh, yeah, another really interesting thing about her is Marcel got reactivated by the French government during the war, and um, Jane, once again, dressed as a man and followed him into the field, and so she was actually on the front line with Marcel during parts of the, the First World War, I believe it was. Um, she was a strong advocate for women, uh, creating literacy awards for her front feet, fellow female writers. She supported women's efforts during the war. She got an award for uh, bravery. Uh, she got a couple academic awards for her writing and for her research that she did along with Marcel. And everything that they did, they put both of their names on. And that's pretty big. So it, yeah, it wasn't Marcel taking credit for it. And actually, it was Marcel who insisted when it came, when push came to shove, he was the one that was insisting that she get her share of the credit for the excavations, which, again, was pretty much unheard of. Oh, here's the, the honor. Um, 
Chevalier of the Légion d'Honneur. <laughs> a prestigious honor for a woman who had so determinedly followed her. She was pretty cool. Another gal that's also on Trailblazers uh, is a, probably one of the more well-known female archaeologists in history, Gertrude Bell. Um, if anyone has heard of a historic female archaeologist, it is often her. Which is interesting because, for a couple of reasons, one of the reasons I think why she is so recognized is she was more of an explorer. A lot of these historic archaeologists did a lot more than just excavations, and she didn't have the formal training as some of the uh, other women that we've mentioned uh, so far along our timeline here. But one of the amazing things that she really did so similar to Jane, she did fight in World War I with her husband, and she traveled with her husband around uh, the Middle East. And her biggest success as an archaeologist was not so much her discoveries as it was her work for uh, the country and people of Iraq, which... At this point, it was just part of Britain, and she was a British citizen. Um, and she worked to get Iraq uh, their own uh, con constitution and national museum. She fought for the right of the people of Iraq to house their own collections. And that was something that during this colonial period. Um, she was born in 1868. I want to back up here. And the Iraqi state, which she helped um, construct with her connections, uh, was uh, began in 1921. So she helped really kind of integrate this and did a lot of traveling with the various politicians and um, explorers, uh, such as Winston Churchill, um, which I think there's a picture I ran across somewhat recently, and I don't remember if it was Churchill who fell off his horse, but there was a picture snapped just after one of the guys had fallen off his, his camel, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and she just kind of stared at him. But it, it's one of those things that not only did, was she involved in the archaeology and the academics and the exploration, but she helped coordinate the political end of archaeology, which is something that we don't hear of often, especially from a woman. It's difficult enough to coordinate the political ends of archaeological anything. I mean, Britain still won't give back Greece, you know, <laughs> everything that they have. So it was pretty impressive that she was able to convince a lot of the regional archaeologists from there to, to for this state, the new state of Iraq, to keep their collections um, for the people and founded the museum, helped found that museum there in Baghdad. So the, the work that she put into this is pretty impressive, particularly for a woman of the early 20th century, uh, that's Gertrude Bell. And she was also 
fascinatingly known. She's mentioned in a couple of um, a couple of kind of off the cuff references. Sometimes you'll hear reference to the Bell maps, which were one of the more accurately drawn maps of the Middle East. Uh, one of the references in pop culture is the English it, during in the film The English Patient. Um, and they refer to her as the man. Like the writers didn't actually <laughs> do their. Do their Gertrude is such a you know masculine name. <laughs> right. Well, they were the Bell Maps. There was it was ah. the E.L. to her last name, but it was her work. Um, so that actually brings us to the end of our second segment. Um, but when we come back, we're going to talk some more about our favorite female archaeologists. The Archaeotech Podcast, hosted by Chris Webby Webster and Chris Boone Sims, is a show dedicated to the technology of the modern archaeologist. On the Archaeotech Podcast, we interview people using interesting tech, and we dig into the issues, advantages, and try to uncover the disadvantages of the digital age and going paperless. We all know there is no paper in the future, or should we say, paper has no future. Check out the show at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. Let's get back to the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Today, we are talking about some really amazing historical figures um, in archaeology, particularly female historical figures in archaeology. Um, Deidre, do you want to start us off? I do. I want to talk about one of the women of the garden clubs. Uh, for people that aren't familiar with this aspect of preservation, uh, particularly in the North American area, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, we start seeing a lot of historic sites being preserved by the ladies' auxiliary, the ladies' garden clubs. And it's typically women of some sort of means that have chosen history as their preferred social thing. And a lot of your favorite big sites, especially battlefield sites, were preserved by these groups. And the person I want to talk about is Adina Emilia de Zavala, uh, the daughter of an Irish immigrant and a Tejano. You know, born uh, 1861, she had private tutors. Her and her sister put on historic plays. And then she went to college and started writing books. Um, she called herself a jealous lover of history. Um, she never married, from what I have been able to find out, never had children. Um, but she kept going after history, and she had a lot of writings of the perspectives of the roles of minorities and women in history, uh, in particular the Alamo in Texas, because she was in San Antonio. Um, she also would gather diverse writings of the history of, um, you know, Texas non-indigenous peoples and did a lot for, she saved Franciscan monks' writings from the 17th and 18th centuries. And it's probably the only reason that we have those to research now. And her most favorite thing is the second siege of the Alamo. <laughs> <laughs> So shortly before this, uh, De Zavala and some of her other lady friends 
would start a group that would eventually become the Daughters of the Republic of Texas. Uh, we have other groups nationwide, you know, the Daughters of the Revolution, Daughters of the Confederacy, et cetera, et cetera. But this one is the Daughters of the Republic of Texas because Texas loves Texas. <laughs> because we do. And she was really big into the Alamo. And already by the turn of the century, the Alamo was already considered, you know, the shrine of Texas independence. But a lot of the actual history of the battle, most people didn't know. And so what is actually the church from the old mission was what everyone thought was the whole thing. But actually it was this huge mission area. And one of the very few things that was still remaining from that mission area is the long barracks of the Alamo. And around 1908, the lease was up on that. And there was talks it was going to be rented or sold to a hotel to demolish it or demolish it, turn it into a park by the city or rent it out to some vaudevillians. And so one day in 1908, she had been talking with her other school teacher friend and gal pal, Anna Ellis, and like, they're going to tear this thing down. And so De Zavala gathered some supplies and guards and padlocks and locked herself inside the long barracks nice. for three days she was continuously having uh food smuggled in the police were nice and because she was a lady um, allowed you know water and coffee to also be brought in Ooh, coffee yeah. <laughs> and you know she famously said i do not sender do not surrender nor retreat nice. and finally after three long days Everyone went like, okay, we won't knock it down. We'll preserve it. And, you know, as we've come to find out now, that, yes, it was a very important part of the whole battle. And, you know, part of saving that is what's allowed some of the more archaeology around the, the battle site to be preserved. And more importantly, she even uh, was able to find people who lived before Republic of Texas in San Antonio and go, yeah, I saw that there. And she was able to gather their descriptions of events. And so we have those records. Um, but if she wasn't such a jealous lover of history, <laughs> you know, we wouldn't have had it. And, you know, a lot of what she done, if you start doing preservation work, you can trace a lot of these writings back to her, you know, why do we preserve these things? How to preserve papers? How to organize historic papers? Um, yeah. uh, she started a lot of the historic marker programs. And right. in the state of Texas, she actually started the historical commission where the ship O'Neill resides. Huh. Nice. Yeah. She was way so. ahead of a lot of uh, the CRM laws, from what it sounds like. Yeah. Right. You know, she was she was a mixed race herself. She made sure we had the history written down of people of, you know, all areas of society and what they contributed to history. So uh, another woman who was kind of before her time and her interest in conservation and preservation was, and I am probably going to butcher this name, uh, but Halat Kambal who uh, was born in 1916, and she actually only died uh, three years ago in, in 2014. Um, she's a Turkish woman. She actually represented uh, Turkey in fencing in the 1936 Olympics, 
and was the, the first Muslim woman to participate in an Olympic Games and um, was well known for staunchly refusing to meet Hitler at said games when she was offered the chance. Uh, <laughs> she was not a fan of him or his politics and one can hardly blame her. Um, she also studied at the Sorbonne um, and then went on to excavate Hittite uh, fortresses, including one at Karatek. And she uncovered what is sometimes referred to as the Hittite Rosetta Stone that has, um, you know, uh, the two languages are, I believe, Phoenician and I, I'm blanking on the other one. Um, but that carved stone in the two different languages has allowed us to unlock a lot of uh, one of the languages. And interestingly enough, her husband, who I believe was a poet, Although I didn't write down his occupation because it was not a priority of mine. Um, so if I'm wrong, I apologize. Uh, but famously, he actually followed her into the field, not vice versa, um, and would work on his work while she would work on hers. Um, and in 2004, she was a recipient of the Prince Class Award which honored her for her work in conservation and cultural heritage protection because that was something that she'd been concerned about since very early on in her career and had really fought for. Um, so she seems like a pretty cool woman all around. Um, I didn't actually find that much information on her and I wish that there was more. But what I did find a lot of awesome. these women. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of that may just be a, a language barrier. Um, you know, she was a, a Turkish woman. I freely admit that I do not speak Turkish. There could be lots written about her in Turkey, and I just don't have access to it because I don't have the necessary language skills. Yeah, but that being said, there never seems to be enough. And even when we uh, decided to do this topic and I was looking up information, it was honestly hard trying to find... Um, information just general about women in general in history of the history of archaeology except you know the the main famous figures so it's a shame even modern more modern era it is still very hard to find out about more prominent women in archaeology I mean you have trailblazers which is awesome but still it can be pretty tricky I, when I was doing my section on my blog about women in archaeology, I have encountered, now I haven't gotten very far on it, but I have encountered at least three women where I have less than a paragraph or two on like three different sites. It's incredibly frustrating to do research on female archaeologists just because I don't even know if it was that they were discounted or if they just simply were not acknowledge like they just weren't people you know mm -hmm. um and so, well, I so wonder how many published under masculine names mm -hmm. I don't know and there's really no, no way to find out nope yeah and um, because if, if they were publishing under men's names we'll we'll never be able to connect them mm -hmm. uh -huh. well and even I mean in a more modern era, most of the famous women that we have, I mean, in history and even now, 
are the the women doing major technological advances, major excavations, and it does make you wonder about a lot of the amazing crew chiefs, um, ama- and just or uh, a faunal analyst or um, somebody right. who does uh, dendrochronology. I mean, just different things that you don't um, that aren't your stereotypical archaeology what you would think of as archaeology so i just wonder how many women are out there that we're we we would hear of you know at maybe a conference but in the wider scheme of things it's like gotta have a shout out to the crew chiefs and the field techs and the pis and the you know all the amazing women in archaeology that may never be you know have an article written about them but they're still amazing the lab manager that translates your handwriting. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. I hate everyone's handwriting. <laughs> right. It's never as good as your own. <laughs> Even if your own is abysmal. <laughs> True story. True story. Yeah. We've all had to do that. Well, yes. I, since we seem to have a little bit of time, I'd like to talk about... Uh, Zila Natal, uh, just because I, she was cool, and it backs us up a little bit, but not too much. Um, Zila Natal, she was a Mexican archaeologist. Um, Some people think that she's a very, or was one of the most important early Mexican archaeologists. Um, I don't, I'm sadly not that versed in Mexican archaeology, so I can't really say one way or the other, but I know that the site that she discovered was very important, and I know that she herself was just kind of cool. Um, she she did grow, uh, she did get married. She was married for precisely four years. Uh, she got pregnant and said, nope, done. Uh, she divorced her husband, maintained sole custody of her daughter, and went back to her maiden name and decided to become an archaeologist. And from there... Uh, she basically worked in the field of archaeology for 47 years, um, holding a position at Harvard and working in uh, different areas in Mexico, particularly at a site that is called the Isla de Sacrificios. Um, it is supposedly a haunted island. However, uh, as Zelia discovered, it housed the ruins of a site of major human sacrifices. Uh, Zelia discovered it. She began excavating it. She worked through adversity that was piled on her, not only by her gender, but also by those around her who wanted to set her back and take credit for her discovery themselves. Uh, Zelia was having none of it. She published an article um, where she basically just tore her rivals apart and pointed out to the National Museum of Mexico that they needed to hire competent people to do their excavations. Uh, competent and honorable engineers and architects. architects, And basically got her rivals fired for fraud. Uh, she was able to maintain her research at that area and became a major force for the preservation of the area. Um, there are other wonderful stories about uh, Madame Natala because she apparently just did not care about modern sensibility. She was more concerned with living life the way she wanted to live it and raising her daughter to be a strong woman as well. So 
I think she was really, I think she's a very important figure in archaeology. And I think she, overall, she's just kind of a cool person. Yeah, definitely. And can't go, um, go on without mentioning how there's this wonderful series called Rejected Princesses. And it yes. looks at um, women throughout history that should be, um, you know, the Disney princess or, you know, featured in a Disney princess film. And so they're imagined in that way. And so it's Rejected Princesses. And Zelia is one of them. And it's a fantastic Zelia is series. one of them. Yeah. And we will be linking to her through that. Oh, definitely. Um, jumping us forward quite a ways, um, just looking at uh, a more recent project and with a case of some really strong, badass women. One of the women that is featured in this amazing project by Trailblazers, and we'll, we can mention that more, called uh, Raising Horizons, is this woman, uh, Lindsay, and I'm sorry if I'm uh, butchering her last name, Eves, I believe, and she was part of the Rising Star Expedition which was conducted a couple of years ago. And it, uh, it was a cave is highly featured in Nature and Archaeology Magazine and Discover. Um, a lot of amazing publications on it. And it's this cave that uh, had early uh, hominin um, bones in there. And unfortunately, no one could really get through one of the squeezes in the cave system. It's like you had these cavers, but the archaeologists, the paleoanthropologists couldn't get in there. And so the head paleoanthropologist had to make a call for women that uh, were, or not women, sorry, people in general of a specific size, but also a certain education that could fit through this one pass that was about seven inches wide. And it just happened that they were able to get six amazing paleoanthropologists there are women that were on the more petite side and Lindsay Eves is one of them and they were able to squeeze through this one area and um, retrieve the fossils and be part of this incredible project where essentially they found a, a new species of hominin or a new branch I'm not sure quite the the best way to describe that but I just, I think it's amazing that here are these women that not only are they doing wonderful work in paleoanthropology, but it's pretty badass to think they're squeezing through these tiny areas of caves. I would be incredibly claustrophobic. I would not be able to do it. But it's amazing that they were able to and they created this amazing, were a part of this amazing project. I, and I'm... They found a couple hundred um, bone fragment, fragments and uh, all of these very, very, very cool um, artifacts and bones and just were able to learn a lot. So check out the Rising Star Expedition. I highly recommend it. And then on top of that, check out the Raising Horizons project that is part of the Trailblazers, which has a wonderful blog about women in archaeology and... Um, a couple other subjects, geology as well, and paleontology, I believe, and Raising yeah. Horizons is revealing the real face of these fields and trying to share the hidden heritage of these fields. And so they'll take someone in the past and then someone in the present, and the person in the present, they will dress and photograph them as if they were that person in the past. So Lindsay Eaves is one of those people, and they have her portrayed as... Um, uh, one of those figures in the past. And 
right now it's an expedition called Raising Horizons, and they have 14 contemporary female scientists photographed with their historic, um, at, or as their historical counterpart. It's gorgeous. The, the portraits are beautiful, and it's, it's really a, a unique way to make that connection to the past. Um, I don't know about that particularly. I do want to say the Rising Star Expedition was for um, Homo Naledi. Oh, thank you. Is the is the name of the um, fossil that they found? Mm-hmm. And when all was said and done, I think they only excavated like a, a one meter by one meter, a two meter by two meter square um, of what was down in the in the bottom of that cave, and came up with. 15 plus complete skeletons and um, I think there's more work to be done there um, at some point as there is always in in archaeology. I was more fixated of course on the caving aspect and being like I can't believe they did that. (laughs) Right Um, I actually one of the women that I go to school with was one of the members of that expedition and I uh, would sincerely like to convince her to um Come. Hey, come on. Come, come on, talk to please. Us. Um, <laughs> We're nice, I swear. But on that note, we are a little bit over, I believe. So if anyone has any final thoughts that they would like to share. There are so many amazing women archaeologists, female archaeologists from all over the world. It was, I think putting this episode together for all of us was definitely a lesson in like, wow, I need to read up on these things. And so, I mean, there's, this is just the tip of the iceberg. A couple of resources, which we've pulled from and mentioned, Trailblazers is definitely a big one. Digventures has a, digventures.com has a feature on women in archaeology and uh, Discovery also had a uh, feature of the 50 most important women in science, and two contemporary female archaeologists have made that list that I mean, that we mentioned today. So um, check out those resources and let us know if there's anyone in particular that you think that we missed, and we'd be happy to to toy around with this idea again. Yeah, we can always do a part two. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think this episode is definitely going to require a part two. I know yeah. there are a couple women on my list that there just isn't enough time to to talk about all of the amazing things that these women have done. And um, for all that we don't learn that much about them in our archaeology classes, when you start to dig into it, there are a startlingly large number and you realize how many silent participants there are. Silent in that history doesn't necessarily record them not silent and that they didn't make contributions and huge contributions at that to the yes. things that we all love um, and they deserve recognition for their work so to any instructors out there hint hint nudge nudge add them to your right syllabi. <laughs> excellent well ladies yeah. thank you so much as always it is an absolute pleasure to to talk to you um, yeah. I'm so glad that I get to spend some time with you all virtually every couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Thank you all for being on the show tonight. Yes. <laughs> so welcome. Bye. 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 We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. 
Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comments section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. Or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomptep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.